KPCA LP, Petaluma, California. Network of Petaluma is part of a national movement to empower adults aged 50 and up to live active and connected lives. We provide volunteer services such as grocery shopping, prescription pickups, phone friends, and community resources, and also offer a variety of programs, interest groups, webinars, and social events. To get involved, please call 707-776-6055 or email info at villagenetworkofpetaluma.org. on Sunday, so it should be a, a good weekend for family and friends. Yeah, except isn't it supposed to rain tomorrow? I don't know. I didn't look. I don't know. I know that uh, my family decided not to get together because it would have to be an outdoor gathering, and we weren't sure about the weather, so I really don't know about the weather, but I'll look real quick. Yeah, Saturday's supposed to rain. Oh, well, it's a good thing Easter's on Sunday. Yeah. yeah, so it kind of bypasses everything. Yeah, everything out of my mom's will be wet. No Easter egg hunt for the kids. Oh, now I go to my nieces, and, you know, the grandkids will be there, and they do the Easter egg hunt at 10 in the morning. And then and then tonight we're going to do Passover at my house. And, um, boy, at the price of meat, I decided to go away from brisket, and I went to a prime rib. It was cheaper. <laughs> yeah, maybe I should come to your house. Oh, well, <laughs> you're invited now. Yeah. Actually, I got I got a Passover plan. Oh, are you going to Passover, Passover? I'm going to go listen to music somewhere. Okay. I'm not sure where. A safe place. Oh, good. Yeah. Just keep a mask on. I, just, I had a cold this week, and I've been letting my guard down going to the grocery store without a mask and not wiping, like, the basket down. I haven't been wiping my hands when I get back in the car. And, you know, so I got my first cold, but life goes on. Yeah. Yeah, well... I just got back from Hawaii, uh, like I, I said last week, and uh, the flight was delayed coming home by two and a half hours. We sat on the tarmac the entire time waiting for a fuel truck, which meant we had to have our masks on, and then the five-hour flight, and then, you know, the time before the boarding. Uh, so nine hours of mask for me was uh, had me in a tailspin. Well, I won't complain about having to wear my mask for an hour today while we do the show. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm like you. I still wear my mask uh, in the grocery store and in any crowded places. Yeah. Um, 
is just a safe thing to do. And what? And you're boosted, right? You got your second. I, boost, I'm right? double boosted. You're boosted. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So you know, it's and you had a birthday this week. I did. I did. Happy belated birthday! Thank you. Yeah, Wednesday. Um, I I turned sixty six. It's like, oh my god, that is like closer to seventy. I thought you were the same age as me. Oh no, I think I'm younger. Yes, you are younger. <laughs> Let's not go into that. Yeah, right. Yeah, 1955. Yeah, yeah it was a. I was born. Um, yep, April 13th. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, this year will be my last year in the 60s. Oh really? Wow. Yeah. Hmm. I'll be really next <laughs> with a real senior. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, okay, I was in Oliver's the other day. And I, you know, got my groceries, and then I paid, and then the lady said, oh, I owe you money. And I said, oh. And so, you know, she gives me $4 back, and then I realized, oh, my God, it's my COVID color hair, which is my natural hair, which is salt and pepper. And she just knew I was a senior citizen. I didn't even have to show my ID. Yeah. 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 So, oh, well. That's, uh, life goes on. But it, I have to say, it is really, I don't know how you feel about this, but realizing this is kind of the end of your life. You know, you have the beginning, then you have the middle, and now this is the end. And I think of my parents and how old we thought they were at 40. And, wow, I, I didn't want to start today thinking that this is the end of my life. Oh, well, not that. Actually, it's just <laughs> the beginning of your life. <laughs> the beginning of the end. Yeah. So, with that, it's the prime time of our life. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So. Wow, a lot of things going on. Um, uh, boy, I, I hope people are reading the newspaper and paying attention. There's a lot of a lot of stuff uh, revolving uh, upcoming elections, and uh, you need to get to know your candidates. So, uh, you know, just don't pick a pretty name on a ballot or listen to somebody else's suggestion. Do the work and get to know the candidates. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, all you have to do is you. Look up. Everybody has a website. You can find out who they are. But more importantly, watch the forums. Yeah. Because you can really tell who a person is by the forums that you watch. And yeah. a lot of them are videoed, so you can actually see it at your leisure. Yeah. And, uh, and also listen to Inside Petaluma on Fridays from yeah. 11 to noon, where we often have candidates on. Right. Yes. Yes. And speaking of which... We have one with us today that I would like to introduce. Are, are you ready for that, Jan? I am ready. All right. It's my pleasure to introduce today Carl Tenenbaum, who is a candidate in the June 7th primary election for the office of Sonoma County Sheriff. Good morning, Carl. Good morning. Thank you for being here. Uh, thank you for having me. My pleasure. Yes, we love sharing candidates with our listeners. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. So, Carl... You're running for sheriff, and what in the world had you made you decide to do that? What made me decide to do it was um, being a Sonoma County resident and uh, having a career in law enforcement prior to moving up here uh, 10 years ago. Um, seeing how the sheriff's office runs and how it functions, and, and realizing that there's a lot of room for improvement, and, and feeling that I have a lot of. Uh, good law enforcement experience uh, and, and a humanitarian approach to people and just feeling that I could uh, really do a good job, an excellent job of leading the sheriff's office. Okay. So starting with the bottom of your resume, why don't you uh, tell us uh, the story of, of who you are and how you got to be where you are today. So my, my origin story um, starts in San Francisco where I was born and raised. Um, um, 
in the late, I was born in the late 50s, and uh, I grew up in San Francisco in the 60s and 70s, and I take great pride in telling people there was, uh, that was a perfect fit for me. No better place to, to, to grow up and live in the, you know, the, you know, the Vietnam War with all the social unrest and protests, and then coming of age during, you know, the, the summer of love and, uh, you know, the gay rights movement. So I just feel it was really part of my DNA. It was, it was my environment, what I absorbed um, growing up. And, you know, I, I was one of six kids. I spent a lot of time running the streets and uh, getting my first share of little, um, you know, shenanigans here and there. But just really, really being a, you know, a city boy and, and really absorbing the, the culture that I grew up in. And then when I, uh, when I got out of public high school, I went, I went to community college and uh, became a paramedic. And I spent two years working on the city ambulances in San Francisco as a paramedic. And it was really um, exciting and rewarding. And it also taught me how to... Uh, approach the public as a first responder, as a caretaker. And I did that for a couple of years. And then uh, in 1981, um, I joined the police department. And it was kind of a dream come true. I grew up, in spite of all the social and civil unrest, uh, my dad had friends that were cops, and I looked up to them. And, uh, and I really embraced the job. I really loved it. And, and I got into the police academy and, and really enjoyed the camaraderie and the, and the fun of the, the being there. But I also saw, you know, again, having a good social view, I saw some of the paradoxes and hypocrisy of, of law enforcement training. But I got through the training, and my first assignment was six years walking a footbeat in San Francisco's Tenderloin District. And that's my background, and that's where I really learned how to be a community-based police officer. I, I learned how to interact with the people there, a lot of people with, the, you know, social situations, whether it's drug use, drug abuse, homelessness. And I really embraced that aspect of the job. So when I was in the 80s, I went to the narcotics unit. I spent three years as a narcotics officer, and um, and it was really kind of a quite the contrast to what I did for the first six years. Instead of being part of the community, I was kind of a suddenly I was a, a, a narcotics cop, you know, running into the community and doing a lot of arrests and, and interdiction. And when I grew up in San Francisco, I I always had sort of a liberal viewpoint with drug use, um, but I also saw the impact of drugs on families and the impact of enforcement. So I did that for a few years, and then after I left the narcotics unit, I went to the administration bureau, and I worked for the chief of police for a couple of years as administrative assistant, and really learned how uh, the department functioned. I was really um, involved with the uh, policy, um, and I was involved with um, staffing and personnel issues, and just saw how a big organization runs, and I was really actively participating in that. I bounced around the department. I had a lot of different assignments after that. Went back to the streets, um, got promoted about halfway through my career as a sergeant, and was a frontline supervisor. And at the same time, I was also very active in the Police Officers Association, which is the union. And, and I was very active there. I represented officers in disciplinary matters. And I also um, was very active with uh, oversight. Because in San Francisco, we had uh, uh, civilian oversight of the police department during my entire career. And it was, it was uh, hard to find uh, a really um, comfortable relationship with the, the oversight um, organization. Um, so I got on a committee, and I worked very hard to, to make the oversight work with the, the, the line officers and with the oversight organization. Um, and in addition to that, I was also a hostage negotiator, um, which really um, helped me to deal with people in crisis. I recognize mental health issues are something that's a major problem, major situation that we have in this country. And, and quite honestly, police officers are not the best people to, to deal with those situations. So I did that, and then I, um, I retired 
eight years ago. Um, my wife is from Santa Rosa. I used to come up to Sonoma County as a kid growing up, and I knew that I always wanted to come here. So having lived in the city my entire life, I felt it was time to go someplace a little bit quieter, a little bit more verdant. And so I came up here. And uh, right after I moved up here, Andy Lopez was killed. And that really um, caught my attention because even after I retired, I stayed very active in, in the law enforcement issues and criminal justice issues. And when I saw in my career, I saw the problems with law enforcement. I saw that the, the, the situations need to be addressed. So Andy Lopez was killed, and I, and I started doing my research on that. And realized that there was a problem there. There was a problem with the training and the policy and what led to that killing. I think it was um, totally avoidable. And that the county um, really didn't handle it well from the beginning to this very point. And then two years ago, I was um, I was approached to participate in the Measure P uh, campaign, and, and I got really active with Measure P. And for the listeners who don't know, Measure P was the ILO Oversight Initiative. ILO was created in response to the Andy Lopez killing, but really ILO didn't have a lot of strength. It didn't have a lot of uh, influence on the sheriff's office. So Measure P. Um, passed resoundingly, 65% of the voters, and to me it was a, a signal that people up here, or people in Sonoma County, um, me included, were ready for change. And that kind of got me more involved. I learned a lot more about the law enforcement in Sonoma County. I read the Civil Rights Commission report from 2000 that addressed some of the major issues up here, and I just decided that we really need a positive change in the Sheriff's Office. So that's what compelled me to get into the race today, and, and that's why I'm running for sheriff. That's remarkable. <laughs> yeah, I'm impressed. I, I want to go back to the mental health. Um, recently in Petaluma, they put together what's called a safe team, and it actually started in, I believe, Medford, Oregon. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, and what a safe team is for mental health, instead of sending officers to a situation that an officer isn't really qualified for, um, and it's not a dangerous situation, you send a safe team out. And, you know, I'm just curious because, you know, you read in the paper there's a lot of um, issues with mental health, and it's not just in the cities, it's also in the county. Is, um, is this, do you, I'm not sure if you know a lot about the safe team, but it seems like it's something that could maybe be implemented um, with the sheriff's department. And... I'm just thinking about this because you brought up mental health, and the SAFE team has really been quite successful. So instead of sending officers, you're sending a group that really understands mental health and then also finds services for people. So I'm just curious if something like that could be implemented in the county. And the other thing is that I want people to realize the county is a big county. And so it's not just like a 10-minute or 5-minute drive you know, if you have an emergency. Um, and so it would be a little bit different than cities, but I'm wondering if it could be incorporated or if, or maybe the sheriffs could work with the other cities to boost the program and work um, in a team effort to, um, to provide those services. I, I have an extensive background in mental health, and, and the program that you're talking about in the uh, in Eugene Oregon is called the Thank you. Cahoots is the standard of the industry, and, and, and Cahoots has been around for 30 years. And, and my mental health background goes back to my when I was growing up. My mother suffered from severe depression, so I grew up um, aware of mental health issues, and I just always feel like I've gravitated towards you know that that 
a holistic approach to people's problems. I'm really, I consider myself very fortunate to, to be able to, I'm, I'm pretty good at communicating with people, I'm very empathetic, um, and, 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 you know, the police are, not even when people call police, um, respond, and they expect them to solve all the problems. And we do have, um, I, I think that the, the situation with mental health is increasing nationwide, and there are a lot of factors, and, and uh, not the least of which was the COVID situation. It really impacted people. Um, I think we all sort of struggled to get through the isolation, the lack of socialization. But uh, when I, I mentioned earlier that when I retired, I went to work for a nonprofit. The nonprofit organization is called Law Enforcement Action Partnership, and it's primarily retired police officers and judges and, and probation personnel, people like me that have experience in law enforcement and see a need for not only reform but 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 just creative alternative solutions. And for the past several years, I've been going around the country virtually um, addressing different communities about these, we call them community responders. And um, uh, Santa Rosa is another um, local entity that just launched the In Response program. And, and the whole theory behind it is when somebody's in a, a mental health crisis, if there's not an immediate threat of danger to anybody, um, to send in a, a police officer who's got just basically the minimal training, and, and a police officer or deputy is always going to fall back to force. That's just what they're trained. That's what they're taught. And it's understandable. A lot of situations are very, are very dangerous. But, but for a police officer to come in and uh, their, their fallback is to give orders and to use force and very minimal mental health training, um, the results just are not not always good. The majority of the time, it works out fine. Most people that I've found in my career in mental health crises are, are compliant. They just want to help. Um, but unfortunately, if you get a young officer or deputy or two, and they just don't have the, the empathy, they don't have the training, and suddenly they're giving orders and things go sideways. So that's why we've recognized nationwide that we need to find an alternative. And it's not just mental health, you know, the substance use issues, the homeless situation. These are all social issues. They're not criminal issues. And, and, and that's you know, the primary purpose of law enforcement is public safety and, you know, enforcing the law. So I've spoken extensively about uh, community responders, the CAHOOTS type program, the response program, and I totally agree with you 100%. It is in a big county. However, we're doing a disservice by not having an alternative responder available countywide. And you made a really good point, Janice, and that's that if we get into a working situation, working relationship with the different um, cities that have the, the alternative responders to ensure that there was a countywide 24-hour program, everybody benefits. Because the other thing that gets lost in the discussion is the officer, the deputy, has to respond to the mental health crisis, especially when it goes bad. Now, that individual is suffering some impact, you know, whether it's PTSD or the fallout from having to use force on a person who's, you know, having a manic episode. So it's a really, uh, it's a really good point that you brought up and something that's kind of one of my, it's one of my pet projects and something that I want to work very hard to get um, implemented when I get elected. I really appreciate um, your response, but I want to go into like officers. I just want people to know that being an officer is a, it's a, it is a difficult job. And what kind of mental health um, would you support? Would you um, place in the department when elected for the officers because they deserve to um, have mental health uh, their mental health evaluated and to work on it. 
so they can be better officers. And because it's a very stressful job, a lot of PTSD. It's kind of like you know you're going to war every single day. That mentality. And um, did San Francisco offer mental health for their officers? Uh, yeah, San Francisco um, was, had a very robust, a lot of different options. Number one, we had an in-house behavioral science unit okay. that uh, offered, you know, with peer support. I was a peer support officer. So that's, uh, it, it sort of formalizes the, the informal discussion that you have with your coworker that's under stress. And it's not, there's no documentation, but there's just so many resources in addition to having a very comprehensive um, you know, um, uh, medical plan that had built-in mental health coverage. We also had an in-house, in addition to behavioral science, we also had in-house um, options for officers to go get, I think it was 12 visits a year, no cost um, for them to, to address their mental health issues. And it's something that I would absolutely um, implement in the sheriff's office. I'm not really aware of what they have now. But the sticking point is, and you bring up a really good point, is that you're in this sort of a arguably dangerous sort of a situation, but more than the danger, which is really not as, as prevalent as people think, it's just the day-to-day grind. It's the day-to-day dealing with other people's, like I said, social issues, the homeless situations, these intractable problems that kind of wear down the officers. And one of the problems is when you make it um, optional, a lot of uh, officers are too proud, uh, too macho to, to participate, and then that just compounds the situation. And I just had a discussion with somebody recently because of the tragedy that we suffered up here with the loss of one of our local law enforcement leaders um, and who had some mental health issues. And, and this person pointed out to me that if, you made, if I made um, counseling mandatory, it takes away the guesswork. In other words, if a, if a deputy's forced to go, you know, after a critical incident or a, a situation, um, then they don't have to, you know, they can say, well, I had to go, um, so I had to participate. Because, again, having the choice sometimes, cops cops are a tough breed, and, and they put up this veneer, and sometimes it's to their own detriment. So, um, yeah, so it's something that, again, very near and dear to me. It's something that I would absolutely still appear because I just think that the level of, I feel like there's a divide between the deputies and the community that they serve sometimes. And a lot of that is, it's, a lot of this, it's, it's bravado. And it's posturing that that you know we're all we're all humans and, and we all have our our weaknesses and our vulnerabilities and there's just this expectation when you put on the uniform that you're going to become kind of a superhero and that's just that's not the case. So we're having having a robust program in place and really thinking more and more about having mandatory um, treatment uh, initiated whenever there's a critical incident or whenever a deputy says that they're under stress. But just making sure that there's multiple places for somebody to go to get help. Well, I appreciate that. It's um, you know it's important. Um, but I kind of want to segue back into the drugs and the amount of, of fentanyl deaths that are happening just within our county alone. Um, how does the sheriff work with all of the cities on trying to find the people that are bringing the drugs in and selling? Do they work in tandem? on that because, it, I mean, it's definitely, it's a problem and, you know, people are lacing these drugs with, um, people don't know what drugs that they're taking, basically. And, you know, in Petaluma, we had a young person die recently of fentanyl overdose. Santa Rosa, there's been quite a bit. 
And, and I also want to say that there's one thing that if you touch fentanyl, you will not, um, that's, that is not a problem because it seems to be, that's, that's a catch-all. just want to throw that in. But what can you do to work with the entire um, county on this, all um, police stations? Uh, so, so the sheriff's office in, in every um, police department in the county, they, they have a task force that works uh, jointly to interdict on you know the, the drug um, clandestine drug dealing in the county. And, and I think that from what I've heard in my experience and even hearing from you know other agencies throughout the state, they're, they're really kind of not focusing on the end user, whether it's the drug addict or even the social drug user. It's more about exactly what you're talking about, dealing with the people that are distributing the drugs. The fentanyl thing, um, it, it, it's, I'm stymied by the impact this had. I don't understand why fentanyl is being introduced. Like you said, every, somebody who wants to recreationally, and I, and I, if somebody wanted to go out and, and, and do some cocaine one night at a party and just thinking that they're going to have a good time doing that and suddenly they're overdosed on fentanyl, I don't understand that. It's, it's you know, like I said, I spent three years in narcotics in the 80s and fentanyl deaths were, were the outlier, they were the exceptional. And I talked to a couple people this week and nobody can really put their finger on how fentanyl is it becomes so pervasive in every aspect of drug use, you know, being introduced in pill form and cocaine and opioids, and I've heard different theories, and that doesn't really make sense to me. But so, so yeah, working collaboratively with the other agencies to, to interdict the dealers and the people that are distributing it, and then also, again, I'm very big on looking at drug use and drug addiction as a health issue. It's something that we need to address from that standpoint. And I can't thank you enough for bringing up the issue about, no, you don't overdose when you touch fentanyl. I've seen, I've seen some of these videos, and I, I'm, I'm aghast at the, the amount of um, propaganda that's being spread. You know, these cops that are overdosing and self-administering Narcan, that's not how this works, people. But uh, that's a whole different discussion for uh, police PR sometimes. Well, I bring this up because this last year there was an officer in Santa Rosa that had an overdose and it was, you know, said I, you know, because he touched it. You know, but with an officer you only see one article, you never see the follow-up. And I hope the person got help, the officer that um, was in the article. His name was not in there. And, I'm, yeah. you know, I don't, um, I think everybody deserves um, a chance to get clean and continue yes. with their lives, not yes. taking their their uh, position away. Right. Yeah. Exactly. I yeah. agree. Yeah. So let's see. Um, microaggression. <laughs> let's talk a little bit about Sonoma County. And um, I've been in Sonoma County my entire life. I mean, there is a lot of racism in Sonoma County, and I have some very close friends who are of color. And and it, it, it is an actual problem here within the workforce, and it's not just the sheriff's department I'm talking about. I'm talking about the county and even within cities and within school districts. How would you address racism within the department, because that's what you would be part of, and what is the microaggression? What do you, what's your definition of a microaggression? 
Um, addressing racism starts with, with awareness. You know, it's all about information and communication. And it's just to, to remind people constantly that, uh, you know, I, I just, you know, I have this kind of myopic, or I'm sorry, this idealistic view of, uh, you know, I used the term earlier, you know, we're all in this together. And, and growing up in a very rich, multicultural city, I, I just... I, I, it was a given that there were, were all different <laughs> races, creeds, colors, every every single class. So, so you know, letting uh, the deputies and all the employees, because there's a lot of non-sworn employees that people forget about too in the sheriff's office, letting them know what, what my philosophy is and letting them know that that's the organizational philosophy and that we embrace everybody and we treat everybody fairly and equally. And it's also being aware of our implicit biases you know, what we, what we take to the table. I was born and raised and grew up in a white middle-class neighborhood, and I have white middle-class values, and that's never lost on me. And yet over time, I've tried to really just always keep an open mind. And I had two very um, um, loving parents who embraced everybody. Um, the microaggression thing is interesting, and I think microaggression is just so, there's such a broad definition of, of what it can be. If somebody sees, a, you know, a tall person, they just assume they play basketball, or, you know, it goes on and on. Um, the interesting thing for me this this week, um, three times this week, I've had people that I consider to be pretty good friends, um, uh, associates, make comments about how they're just, they're tired, they got tired of the Black Lives Matter thing, they're just so over it. Um, and of course, all three of these people are, you know, pretty well-off white people. And, and my, I don't say anything, but I just in the back of my mind thinking, you know, well, you don't know what it's like, you know, do you understand what the issue is? And I know that's not quite what a microaggression is, mm-hmm. but it sort of feeds that narrative of we just assume that everything is hunky-dory, but we'll make these also these um, stereotypical assumptions, like I said, the tall person is a good example, or, you know, just, just thinking if a person represents a certain race or culture, that they have a certain talent that's been, you know, attributed to that race, or, you know, the, the telling, telling a person of color that they're very articulate, it's just sort of like, well, what does that mean exactly? So those are, and they, they call microaggressions for a reason, because there's small little paper cuts that, you know, that we end up hemorrhaging from. You know. So that's that's kind of you know, but again, getting back to racism within the organization and even even within the county is to just keep promoting our ideals and keep promoting what we believe that it, we're all we're all in the, we all put our pants on one leg at a time, and that's something that we can't lose sight of. Well, a few weeks ago, I went to um, it wasn't a play, but it was a group of people, and they talked about. Um, they talked about what it was like to be black and when you're talking to your white friend who you went to college with and then it was talking about um, a young man and his and his mother that their son was gunned down and then two white police officers came onto the stage and they had this conversation and then it was um, the insurrection you know so they had all of the all these discussions and the bottom line is, in the insurrections, if those were black people, they would have been gunned down. There is no doubt about it. It's white people, and they are treated differently. And then, um, you know, when I look at the war in Ukraine, it's um, people got engaged in this country, people I know that are, that are racist. And they're yet engaged because they're white, they look like us. 
But yet, you talk about Syria and you talk about other countries that Russia has done atrocities to and other parts of the world. And people don't see the difference. When you see yourself, then you see, boy, that could happen to me. But you don't relate to somebody of color. And so our history really shows that racism is still really alive in the world. And when I was at this event, uh, there was a, a black couple there, and I asked them about it. I said, did you notice, or how did you feel when you're seeing all this support for Ukraine? And they got it. But black people are very quiet. But when you engage, you learn a lot. So communication is important, and really kind of looking beyond. So... Take a drink of water. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let me let the listeners know that we're talking with uh, Carl Tenenbaum today. Carl's a candidate for Sonoma County Sheriff in the upcoming June 7th primary election. And um, looking at your website, Carl, um, you talk about key issues that you're going to address uh, as sheriff. And you've listed uh, public safety, crime suppression, and criminal investigations as one of those points. Do you want to elaborate on that? Yeah, I, I have a you know I have extensive background being a, you know working in a, an urban environment as a police officer and working on the street. But I know when I recognize crime patterns and crime trends. Um, I, I'm I'm happy to say that arguably Sonoma County does not have an extensive or extreme crime problem. Um, we have sort of the the same uh, issues, similar issues as a lot of other you know counties throughout the state, throughout the country. But it's just a matter of identifying uh, criminal patterns. I mean, up here we have the catalytic converter thefts are big. Um, we have, you know, the cannabis grows are a big issue. Um, even though it's legal now, we still have some of that going on. And it's just a matter of identifying that and then having a very um, thorough investigation and working closely with the district attorney's office to, to have a really um, tight working relationship so we know what the priorities are and how we're going to enforce them. And then also there's... Um, there's an argument and there's a uh, discussion out there about a lot of the crimes are committed by a small number of people. So it's just identifying, you know, who the repeat offenders are and, and addressing it in, um, you know, um, a manner so we can reduce that. But again, Sonoma County and Sonoma should be, um, take solace in the fact that we don't have any major crime problems. We have the, the, the garden variety, and then we also have the big social issues, like I spoke about earlier, the home situation, um, drug usage, and that's working with the other agencies throughout the county to identify the problems, see what the root cause is, and to work to you know, eradicate, whether it is from an enforcement issue or from uh, a prevention issue, and to just uh, ensure that everybody um, is, is you know, able to go about their business in Sonoma County um, safely. Okay. You know, um, today in the Argus Courier, there was, um, it was about a man who had been homeless and, I mean, living in a tent homeless. And we're, they, we have these uh, new tiny homes, and it's a little village um, by cots. And so um, the ones that are completed, um, people are now living in there. And it, was, it felt so rewarding to know that the city created a place for somebody to actually be sheltered. You know, from the elements, um, they're very tiny, but 
he has a job, he works, and he's just hoping that within six to 12 months that he'll be able to actually find housing and more permanent housing. And I think it's just so important, um, this is not really a question to you, but just the people need to have more compassion for the homeless. And we have to provide services for them. And they're human, like any of us. And, you know, a lot of times they are down on their luck. It's drugs. There's a lot of different reasons why they're homeless. And, you know, as a county, I think we're going in the right direction with it. Um, and I just really want to elevate that a little bit higher because the success stories are pretty powerful. And it really goes to show just something as simple as a tiny home for somebody to live in um, can really change a person's um, life. And it also makes it, um, it's better for the county. It's better where you live. You want to interact with people. And so I just want to throw that out because it was really, um, it felt really good to read that because I was not at the grand opening, but I was at um, one of the openings when they were demonstrating these little houses. And, you know, now you're seeing the, the next step. And I think, you know, as a county, we, we have to all work together to make these changes because one entity can't do it alone. It really takes a village, you know, to, um, to make changes. And I think um, as humans, we need to slow down a little bit and look at the human aspect of all of us instead of um, there's just so much hate right now in the world. So, yeah. yeah. Hopefully that's going to be changing. So tell us, you have a couple of children. Can you talk about your your daughter, who I believe is a lawyer, and your son, I'm not sure what he does. <laughs> well, I think he's in law enforcement, actually. I recall from our conversation a long time ago. Yeah, so I have two children. Um, my, my, my oldest is uh, my daughter, Lisa, and um, uh, they're both born and raised in San Francisco, and they're a year apart, and my daughter... Um, she she fulfilled my dream because growing up I had two big dreams. One is I always wanted to be a cop. The other one is I always wanted to be the great litigator. I wanted to be a lawyer. And I got about halfway through law school as an adult going to law school at night as a cop. And it just, it, it became more than I could handle. But I did enjoy it. Anyway, my daughter followed my dream and she became an attorney. Uh, she went, she did her undergrad work at LSU, but then she went to Golden Gate in the city. And when she, uh, when she became a lawyer, she actually went down to, um, Tulare County, and she went to work for the county council. So she worked at Tulare County Council for a while, and then she came up here, and um, yeah, this probably come to surprise you. She was actually working for the Petaluma City Attorney's Office for a number of years, okay. uh, up until about three, about two years ago, a year and a half ago. And then she just decided it was time to move on. She had, um, she had done enough work there, and um, when she went to Louisiana State University, she kind of I developed an affinity for that part of the country. So she's now living in New Orleans. Wow. Uh, she just bought a house down there. And she's a, uh, she works for a nonprofit, working on criminal justice reform. And she's also very active in my campaign, too. She's one of my uh, uh, campaign staff people. And really, um, she's, I tell people she's really smart. She loves her dad. She's helping me run this election. So uh, that's my daughter. I couldn't be prouder of her. And then my son. Uh, a year younger than my daughter, he graduated from high school. And instead of following his sister's footsteps, he joined the Marine Corps. Oh. And after he got out of the Marine Corps, he joined the San Francisco Police Department. And he's been there for 16 years now as a police officer working on the streets. He's a motorcycle officer. And, um, and I'm really proud of both of them. And they both have 
They both have the nice touch. My son's a really good cop because he has the humanitarian approach. He grew up around it. He saw me and, and the type of uh, police officer that I was. And, uh, yeah, he's uh, and he lives in the city just like I did. We both, you know, I, I, I like to, you know, I talk about San Francisco because it is my hometown, or at least it was up until a decade ago. Um, it, there, there's a lot to be said about living in the community that you work in, especially in law mm-hmm. enforcement, because you develop this, this sense of uh, investment. I was invested in the community. That was my city. And so when I worked there, I really felt an obligation to to the people that live there and the people that visited there because just like Sonoma County, it's very tourist-rich. So, um, so yeah, those, those are my kids, and, and, and I couldn't be, um, like I said, I couldn't be any prouder of them. They're both, uh, both by hard Giants fans, just like their dad, so uh, they got the Bay Area in their blood. Well, that's great. That's, uh, that's a great story. Your daughter, I'm very impressed that, um, you know, both your kids, you know, care about social issues and understand the bigger picture. And that really comes from the home. You know, hate comes from the home and goodness also comes from the home. And so that's, I'm glad to hear that. I didn't know that about your daughter. That's very exciting. I did know you, I did recall that your son was a San Francisco police officer. And I have a nephew who's a um, police officer also in San Francisco. So, and actually, I've known quite a few police officers um, that have retired from San Francisco to live in Petaluma. And the ones I know are really good people. <laughs> so, um, budget-wise, what kind of a budget does the sheriff's office have? And as far as recruiting, um, will you be recruiting? Will you be making changes? What kind of changes would you make within the department? as far as the officers? The, 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 the answer first part of the question, the budget right now is about $210 million. And one of the criticisms being levied at me by my opponents is the fact that I've never managed a big budget before like that. The irony there is that neither have they. It's been interesting in the campaign. So $210 million, a large the majority of that budget is already spoken for. It's already baked into contracts, salaries, um, staffing issues. So, so there's a, a you know a few million, ten, twenty million dollars left over. It's kind of discretionary spending, and that's just where the priorities of the sheriff at any given time are. Um, uh, this sheriff will invest it in community-based stuff and, and less with uh, you know weapons and and, and uh, you know military-grade hardware. Um, more humanitarian training. So, so that's the budget in, in a nutshell. And again, a lot of it is already spoken for. And, you know, people, I, I find it interesting, people talk about, like, they think on day one you walk in and there's just a pile of $210 million there, and you get decided to do it. No, it's, it's already accounted for. Plus, there are people in the sheriff's office in the county that are the green counters. They make sure it's done well. Um, and, and as far as recruiting goes, it's, it is, um, it's unfortunate that the Sonoma County Sheriff's Office doesn't reflect Sonoma County at, at all in any way, shape, or form. Sheriff's Office is primarily white males. Um, uh, the county is comprised of 50% females, roughly. And yet, I think the sheriff's office is 7%. And a lot of this has to do with, you know, the, the, the way law enforcement is going through a metamorphosis. And, and they're really having a hard time changing the way we, we identify 
how law enforcement is done and what police officers and deputies do. We talked earlier about mental health issues, and there's this just old way of training, and there's this traditional way of training that really, really leans on, you know, sort of a paramilitary structure, and I, I alluded earlier to a lot of force. There's very little training in constitutional law. There's very little training in not only de-escalation, but in human psychology and, and empathy and compassion. So the recruiting starts with reaching into the communities throughout, not only Sonoma County, but primarily Sonoma County, but throughout the state, and going into those communities we are more reflective of California, which is, you know, a big Latino population. You know, we've got a very robust black population in the state. Um, LGBTQ, very underrepresented, and I think very discriminated against. I know that, you know, since I've been really involved in, in law enforcement issues in Sonoma County, um, and especially in the sheriff's office, I've heard stories about misogyny here, and it's unacceptable. So recruiting, getting a more broad-based, um, open-minded um, recruit base, and and, um, and just really promoting a more progressive value in law enforcement. Like I said, you know, constitutional law, human psychology, and then also, you know, there's a state agency that regulates um, uh, law enforcement. It's called California Post. And they have minimum standards for training and for hiring. And I just think if we, we elevate the standards to be more inclusive and less um, force-based and less fear-based, because that's the biggest problem in law enforcement is the fear-based training. And that's why we have these really, you know, horrible outcomes, these reactions to situations that are not life-threatening, but yet they're couched that way. So, yeah, I would do a very robust outreach. And then I remind people that, you know, when I get elected, there are going to be some high-ranking um, uh, sheriff's administrators that are going to be leaving. They're going to retire just because it's their time. There will be openings at the top levels of the sheriff's office, and those, are, those can be appointed and filled by outside people. So I would also look around, especially the state, but even in our local area, there are some very talented um, law enforcement professionals who reflect different ideals. They're not from the, even though they've been in the, the industry for 30 years or 20 years, they have more progressive um, viewpoints and also they reflect the community better, where it's LGBTQ, like I said, Latino, Hispanic, API, to just because then that, that helps to instill, you know, my philosophy of inclusivity and, and diversity and inclusion. I mean, with that, um, I did some interviews for um, the judges for Sonoma County. And we interviewed Oscar Pardo, I'm sure P-A-R-D-O. I'm not saying it with the, the right context, but he's going for Superior Court 9. He's a candidate. And what struck me during his interview, he talked about when he goes to the courts, that Latinx, um, a lot of Latinx are up in the courthouse, and they actually come to him to ask questions because they see that he is one of them, and they feel comfortable. And I know in Sonoma County, it's a very white in as far as the judges, and I'm really hoping that's going to change. Um, and so it was, it was just, it really struck me, you know, when he said that. People feel comfortable when they think that somebody knows what your concerns are. They can feel what your concerns are because, you know, he, he has an interesting background and and he has that compassion. And it's really important that we get judges that actually, just like in the police department or just like in the grocery stores, that actually look like other people instead of just this white, whiteness. So... 
Um, I wanted to follow up uh, with a question about the recruitment and hiring. You talk about um, creating a, a mentorship program, Carl, for young people to develop interest in uh, careers with the sheriff's department. What, what would that program look like? It, it, it would look like going into the communities uh, of, uh, again, the communities that are more reflective of, of our, you know, the majority um, base of the county. I mean, it's still kind of predominantly white um, population, but there's so many others. So it would be going into the different communities, starting at, you know, at the high school level, even the middle school level, um, to just um, to reach out to them and, and to, to, to to basically um, identify the job and sell the job as, as something that people should be interested in. You know, I, I grew up, it was always the emphasis, and even today, um, to go on to higher education. You get out of high school, you go to college, and I think that's really, really a good thing. I just, there's no there's no substitute for good education. But there's also, there's a lot of talk to hear now about that we don't get enough people going into the trades. We don't get enough people going into the service industry. And, and they're not mutually exclusive. You can still go to college and become educated, but you can still be a, a, a craftsman. You can still be a, a service individual. And the same thing with law enforcement. I, I was passionate about my job. I love being a police officer, and I really recognized the role that I had in the community. So to go out, and, and Janice makes a really good point about Oscar, and that's to take the few deputies that we have, or even the civilian employees of color that are bilingual, and have them go out and say, look, this, this, is, this is the organization I work for, this is who I am, and it's very rewarding. Um, I was at an event the other night, and, and I, I used the term, somebody asked me that question, I said, so how do I, as a 65-year-old white guy, come across and let people know that I'm all about this. And I said, trust me, the irony is not lost on me. It's not at all. But, but I also know that in my heart of hearts, the community that I came from, again, San Francisco, I don't know if there's a more diverse city in the country. So to grow up in that environment and then to work in those environments, having worked out in the, you know, the Bayview Hunters Point, uh, communities of color and really becoming integrated with them and and, I, and I'm really proud to tell people, you know, if you go to my website, www.calltforsheriff.com, you look at my endorsement page, the first thing you're going to see is primarily women and women of color mm-hmm. who've endorsed me. Right. And, and it's not just their name and their picture. There are statements and comments from people that I've met in the past couple of years who have just really embraced me and they, they believe in me. So so it's getting my message out and, and having the deputies and even the employees, fully employees, go into those communities. And I really, I think high schools are a really good place to start and just have, you know, whether it's an active cadet program, bring them into the sheriff's office for a ride along or to go see how we do the training, come visit me in the sheriff's office and just know that this can be a really rewarding, and not only rewarding career, but it's also it's a very secure career too, and and um, you know I talked earlier about fear-based training, and um, you know law enforcement is the 22nd highest uh, risk factor job in the country. So it's not all it's not all danger, it's not all threat. It's more community-based uh, interaction. So that's what I would do. Well, I went through your endorsement list, and I'm very impressed with um, who's endorsed you. And I just want to shout out to Natalie Rogers who I just heard speak recently. I mean, she is, she's a powerhouse. And she's on the Santa Rosa City Council. And it feels so good to, you know, see somebody of color, you know, representing not just her community, but she's representing the bigger community 
and she is, I, I like her very much, but I'm also looking at, you know, some of your other, um, you know, endorsements, and I mean, it's really quite an array of people with different backgrounds, and they're, you know, I, I know most of them by name, <laughs> or I've read about them in the paper, whether it's a lawyer or commissioners or council members or supervisors. And I think um, I'm just really, I think you've done a great job, and I think they've made a very good choice. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. <laughs> thank you very much. Yeah. Um, did I see, uh, I, I should uh, have let the listeners know that we have Carl with us by Zoom video conference, but did I just see a dog tail a few minutes ago <laughs> wagging behind you? Are you a dog person, Carl? I am a dog lunatic. I am, I am the guy that leaves my three knucklehead dogs at this house, and the minute I see a dog on the street, it's like I've never seen a dog before. <laughs> I just, yeah, I, um, I grew up with dogs. I've had dogs my whole life, and I've got um, I've got three rescues. The one you just saw is Duke. He's my, he's my right-hand guy, and Duke is easily the biggest dog I've ever had. He's a 110-pound Pit master mix, and he's just—he's wow. just a beast. But yeah, I have three dogs, and I have three rescue cats. They're all rescues. I'm a rescue guy, and uh, yeah, I, I don't know—I don't know life without a dog. And um, it's great being out, like when I go to street fairs or, or uh, you know when I'm out canvassing. Dogs just open so many doors for me because I start loving on your dog, and then oh, by the way, my name's Carl Hennem. I'm my brother share. So it really is, it's really That's good. Cool. I know. Cool. Every time I walk by a dog, I go, hi, puppy. You know, it's just like the dog is what you're drawn yeah. to. And yeah. people are nice, too, but I love yeah. it. Yeah. I happen to love dogs. Yeah, yeah, I have rescue dogs. My three dogs um, really um, rescued me. I didn't rescue them. Mm-hmm. I could tell people. It's yeah. just heartwarming how how happy you can make them and how happy they can make you. Exactly. Yeah. 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 yeah my daughters, um, they made me get a dog. They said, it's really going to be good for your health, Mom. And so I've had Coco three and a half years, and she is just a love. Yeah. And so it's good for all of us. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so we're winding down. We have a few minutes left, and I'd like to give you, Carl, a, a few minutes just to have some final words uh, for the listeners and throughout your website uh, again? Um, okay, thank you. Um, this is the point, and I have to be really candid, that, you know, I've, um, this is the first time I've run for elected office, and, and, and I really did a lot of soul-searching a year ago before I got into it. Talked to a lot of people, um, a lot of my endorsers, people that I've known in politics, uh, close friends, and I got a lot of support. But I really, I really had to make sure I was up for the task and also to, to realize why. And yeah, I, I have never, I've had a really amazingly rewarding life, and yet I've never embarked or been involved in anything so humbling and inspiring and rewarding. And it really keeps me motivated to, to keep moving forward. And I know the challenges I have with my two opponents, but I also know what I have that they don't have, and that's just that I am who I am. And I can deliver. Everything I do comes from my heart. And I really um, I, I don't make many campaign promises. But the one thing I can tell you unequivocally is that nothing about me changes. Nothing changes whether I'm here or out at the store today or walking my dogs or at a forum. 
I can tailor my message and I can modify it a little bit. But, but I'm, I'm, I'm true blue, I can say I'm the real deal. And, and I just want to take that message out to the public and say that, you know, two years ago, Measure P passed by 65% of the people. And the message was, there's it's time for change up here. It's time to, you know, I'm not necessarily modernize the sheriff's office, but to just make them a more compassionate agency that is really more in tune and empathetic to the community that we serve. And it is a big county. It's 1,600 square miles, a lot of cities and a lot of people. But on my website is Carl T for Sheriff. Uh, my phone number's on there. There's an email on there. Uh, I'm running truly a grassroots campaign. I've gotten a lot of good um, organizational endorsements, but I don't have the unions behind me. Actually, you know what? Let me strike that. I have SEIU. I've got the working unions, and I, I don't have the, you know, the, the, the Sheriff's Association. Like I said, I was a member of the POA. These uh, unions have gotten a little bit out of their lane, and they've gotten a little bit too muscular with what they're doing. And I just want to rein that in a little bit and really say that I'm a true advocate for transparency and oversight and accountability to make for a better organization. And, uh, yeah, this has been extremely humbling, and I can't thank you enough for having me on today. Well, and we want to thank you for being here. It's been a pleasure. I and, agree. Uh, we hope to have you back as sheriff at some point. Yeah, I, I like the sound of that very yeah, much. So. Yeah. Great. <laughs> All right. Okay. All right. And let people know that you can still register to vote. June 7th is the, um, the election. Register soon that you can go ahead and get your absentee ballot. That's a good point. Actually, yeah. if they go on my website, we have a register to vote link on my website. Oh, great. So we'll, we'll, we'll tell them out. Okay. So. Thanks All again, right. Carl. Thanks, Thank Carl. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with Carl Tenenbaum, who is a candidate for Sonoma County Sheriff in the upcoming primary election on June 7th here in uh, Sonoma County. And uh, I'm Cindy Thomas, and Janice Cater-Thompson is sitting here with me as my co-host. And we are inside Petaluma, and we're here every Friday from 11 to noon. And we also have a website called InsidePetaluma.com where you can go and listen to this show later on in the week and all of our past shows. And our Facebook page is KPCA Inside Petaluma. Go and uh, check there every week and see who our guest is. I usually post that on Thursday night. And what else, Janice? What am I missing? Well, we want to make sure that they like us on Facebook. Oh, they, they, they're going to love us on Facebook. Of course. They yeah. love us in, in, on the air. <laughs> it's a lot of likes. Yeah. No, it's, um, you know, I'm very impressed with Carl. Yeah. And what we do know in Sonoma County, it's time for a change in our sheriff's department. And we need to, you know, get a little bit more progressive. We call our, ourselves a progressive county, but sometimes <laughs> there's uh, organizations that are not as progressive. So... I'm looking forward to the June 7th election. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Oh, uh, I'm looking forward to just a little bit more rain tomorrow. I mean, it's not my favorite, but we need it. And uh, my my yard absolutely loves it. So. Yeah, well, I just wanted to tell people, make sure when you turn your faucet on, get a bucket under your faucet and keep saving yep. your water. Um, that's what I'm doing. And then we take out like this big, almost five-gallon bucket once or twice a day, and we just, you know, put it in the garden. Yep. We're having a terrible drought. Yeah. I mean, this this rain is like a, a little 
puncture for, the, for the plants, yeah. but it's not yeah. it's not going to maintain them. No. So save that water and water your plants. But I will say, thank goodness we've had some rain because you try and put up a political sign, you tap those big uh, <laughs> in the ground. Oh my God! Start in June and it's just like rock. So yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay, with that, um, um, I think we're just about done. I think we'll see you next week. And everybody have a great weekend. Be safe. And eat lots of great food. Yeah. I'm coming to your house. I love, I love cooking and I love food. Yeah. <laughs> All right, everybody. Take care. We'll see you next week. We'll on the moon on Friday. Everybody have, enjoy your Easter weekend. Take care.